morning, church family. It is great to be back in the pulpit today after a week sitting under the preaching of Pastor Lose. I hope you all found Lose as edifying as I did, and I wanted to thank you all for the warmth and the hospitality you showed him last week. Lose had nothing but good things to say about our church family and the culture that is growing here. So again, thank you all for the kindness and the love you showed him last week. As for our text today, this morning we will be finishing up 1 John chapter 2, a chapter we have been working our way through for the past six weeks. And because of all that has transpired thus far, I would be remiss if I didn't offer at least a brief overview of of chapter 2 before we begin, just to make sure we are all on the same page from a contextual standpoint. So if you can remember back to approximately six weeks ago, John opened chapter 2 by calling his Christian readers in verse 1 to not sin. And that was quite the charge, wasn't it? However, John knows that everyone does sin, even Christians. Therefore, he reminded his readers that when they do sin, verse 1, they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous who is, verse 2, the propitiation for their sins. However, John also calls his readers that just because they have a Savior who advocates for them before the throne of God and who paid the price for their sins, that does not mean that they also have a license to sin as much as they'd like. Instead, it should naturally be the desire of the Christian to keep God's commandments, verse 3 to love each other, verse 10, and to cling to the truths pertaining to Jesus Christ, verse 23, and to not love the world, verse 15. Because the world and all its sinful and wicked and lustful desires, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, they are all passing away, verse 17. Therefore, John calls his Christian readers to not hitch their wagon to the ways of the world, but instead to do the will of God. Because those who do the will of God, they will abide forever, verse 17. However, this will be no easy task, brother Christian, sister Christian. Because, as John warns, there are people who are going to be going out and trying to deceive you. As many antichrists have come, verse 18. And these antichrists are people who deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and who deny that it is only through the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ that one can be saved. To which John says, these people, these antichrists, they are liars. Because the truth is, Christian, verse 24, what you have heard from the very beginning that Jesus is the Christ, the only Son of God, our advocate, our propitiation, and the only means of eternal life. Therefore, since the Holy Spirit has revealed this eternal, redeeming, atoning, saving, justifying truth to us, we then, as the children of God, are to abide consistently and continually in these God-given truths forever and to not get swept up into the false teachings of the Antichrist. Which brings us to our thesis statement concerning the final two verses of chapter 2. And our thesis statement this morning is this. Christian, you are a child of God. Thus continue to practice righteousness until Christ returns. So that when he does return, 
we may have complete confidence. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this. Christian, you are a child of God, thus continue to practice righteousness until Christ returns, so that when he does return, we may have complete confidence. And our text this morning is 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. The Apostle John, he writes, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning and to worship Father, I pray that you open our eyes this morning and our ears to the beauty of this text. Father, you are a good God who is in control of everything. And you have called us as your children, as the children of God, to abide in you. And we can do that because we are your children. And we can have a confidence in that because we know you have prepared a room for us and that you will come again. Great is thy faithfulness. Father, I pray that you give me the words to speak this morning, that they be glorifying to you, and they build up this dear flock. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our first of two points this morning is this, point number one. Those who abide in Christ in the here and now will have confidence in him when he returns in the future. Those who abide in Christ in the here and now will have confidence in him when he returns in the future. Verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John begins verse 28 by calling his readers little children. Now remember, this is an endearing phrase that John uses to showcase his pastoral heart and his love for his readers. It's a phrase he used to begin the chapter. It's a phrase he used to begin his words of encouragement in the chapter. It's a phrase he used to begin his warning about the many antichrists in the chapter. And it's a phrase he uses again here to transition to a new topic in the chapter. However, this new topic is something that he has already called his readers to in chapter 2. That being verse 28, to abide in him, or to abide in Christ. And this word abide likely sounds familiar because it is the tenth time in chapter 2 that John has used it. So just to make sure we are all on the same page, when John says we are to abide in him, or to abide in Christ, what John is communicating here as David Allen put it, is that abiding is not only the continual acceptance of the truths of Christ, but furthermore, the continual interactions with the truths of Christ found in the scriptures, and then letting those truths control our thinking and our actions. So why should we as Christians continue to abide in the truths of Christ and interact with the truths of Christ and let the truths of Jesus Christ continually control every thought and action of our lives? 
Well, verse 28 says, so that when he appears, when Christ appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, if you remember back to two weeks ago in verse 25, John gave his readers an exceptional incentive or an exceptional reason to continue abiding the truths of Jesus Christ, which was that it leads to eternal life. However, here in verse 28, John simply continues to build on that theme and offer yet another reason why Christians should abide in Jesus Christ, which is, verse 28, it leads to confidence when Christ returns. It leads to assurance, it leads to courage, and it leads to certainty for the Christian at the return of Jesus Christ. Because although it is the last hour, as John previously mentioned, and although many antichrists have come, and although the antichrist is coming, more importantly than all of that is that the last hour will end when Jesus Christ appears. And thus John warns his readers to not be unprepared when Christ shows up, to not be caught off guard when Christ returns, to not be doing something you shouldn't when Christ comes again. Because when Jesus Christ returns, you do not want to be one who has to shrink from him and shame. Because from an earthly perspective, and we've all been here, haven't we? We've all been surprised by an unexpected visitor. We've all been caught off guard when we hear an unexpected knock at our door, and quite frankly, it is the worst. I mean, it never goes well. I remember when my family first moved into the parsonage, and that first week there was a knock at the door at 8.30 on a Saturday morning, and it was our new neighbors bringing us a wonderful gift basket to welcome us to the area. However, the only problem was that on this particular Saturday morning, I was home alone with my three children, my five-year-old son, my two-year-old son, and my four-month-old daughter. So being that it was 8.30 on a Saturday morning, honestly, I was just trying to keep my three children alive until their mother returned. I had not showered, I had not combed my hair, I had not brushed my teeth, and I doubt I was in anything more than sweatpants and a slept-in t-shirt. To make matters worse, my four-month-old was hungry and wanted her mother and not daddy. So when I heard the knock at the door, I did what any new pastor would do. While holding my screaming four-month-old, I opened the door, and the reaction on our new neighbors' faces were priceless. As they stood there in shock, observing me, the new unkept pastor, his screaming four-month-old, in a mess of a house that stood behind us. But in the distance, I heard my two sons running toward the door, and I knew if anything could salvage the situation, it would be them in their cuteness. However, my two-year-old approached me frantically, and it quickly became obvious that he did not have any clothes on. <laughs> and that he was running so frantically because his older brother was chasing him, trying to shoot him with his new toy shotgun, a toy in which his grandmother had bought him the week before. And thus, their, our new neighbors left scratching their heads, wondering who in the world did Faith Bible Fellowship Church hire as their new pastor. And I closed the door, embarrassed, humiliated, and shrinking in shame. So if it is this embarrassing and humiliating and shameful to be unprepared when our earthly neighbors show up at our house, how much more shameful would it be to be unprepared when Jesus Christ the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords finally returns. 
You see, church, there are going to be two types of people when Jesus Christ returns. There will be those who will be filled with joy and excitement and confidence at the return of Christ, and those who will be filled with shame and disgrace and remorse upon his arrival. And this shouldn't come as any surprise or a surprise to anyone that there will be two vastly different responses to Christ when he comes again. I mean, I see this example played out each and every day within my own family. For when I return home from work, if my boys had a good day and behaved and listened to their mother and cared for each other, oh, they naturally come running out to me, joyful and excited to see me. And with confidence, they embrace me with open arms and are thrilled to see me, for Daddy has come home. But oh, on the days when the boys reject listening to the words of their mother and are cruel to each other, and there is some form of discipline that needs to take place when I return home, For some reason, they are not excited to see me. They do not come running out to greet me. Instead, they might stay inside or be slow to make eye contact when I walk by because they know the arrival of dad means that their time of punishment has come. And the same will be true when Jesus Christ returns, church. Those who reject the teachings of Jesus Christ those who stand in opposition to the ways of Christ and who taught lies about Jesus Christ, it is certain that when Christ returns, those who did such things and who are unrepentant and outside of the saving grace of Christ, oh, they will certainly shrink from him in shame. As Revelation 6 describes it, that when he, Christ, opened the sixth seal, I, John, looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand oh church when christ returns the unbeliever will shrink from him in shame for they will be unprepared for his return since they have exchanged the truth for a lie and have rejected jesus as the christ the messiah and the only means of salvation but for the believer For those who have been anointed and who know the truth and who abide in the truth and have the promise of eternal life, they will most certainly not shrink from Christ upon his return. Instead, brother Christian, instead, sister Christian, you, verse 28, can have confidence when Jesus Christ comes again. However, this eternal confidence, this eternal assurance, this eternal boldness is only possible if you continue to abide in Christ. Not deny Christ, but continue to abide in Christ in the here and now. Because what you abide in in the here and now, church, it has eternal significance. For when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, Matthew 25. And those who deny Christ before men, Christ will deny before his Father who is in heaven, Matthew 10. So the question is this morning, if Christ returned today, would you be ashamed of what you are currently abiding in? 
knowing that you denied Jesus Christ and abide instead in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, or in the liberal theologian, or in the teachings of Muhammad or Buddha or Joseph Smith, or in politicians and political parties or secular policy. Because whether it is a false gospel you abide in, a false religion, or worship of political powers, whoever denies Christ before men, Christ also will deny before his Father who is in heaven. And there is no confidence for the one who stands in the presence of God based on their own merit. However, those who do abide in Christ in the here and now, who hold fast to his nature and his accomplishment and his message, and who don't give that up, who don't ever give up their confession of Jesus Christ, at the return of Christ, they will have confidence, assurance, and certainty because they have run their Christian race well and with endurance. Thus, if you want to be ready, church, if you want to be prepared and equipped and primed for the return of Jesus Christ, then keep yourself away from the ways of the world and make it your obsession to abide in Christ in everything you do, for it has eternal significance. And how is this possible, Christian? To flee from the ways of the world and continue to abide in Christ even as the world becomes darker and uglier and even more hostile to the things of God? Well, first... We must be born of him, which takes us to point number two. Those who are born of God will look like their heavenly father. Those who are born of God will look like their heavenly father. Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John closes chapter two with, if you know that he is righteous... If you know that God is righteous, or as the New Living Translation puts it, since we know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, the righteousness of God is not a new subject for the readers of 1 John. As John wrote early on in chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, meaning that God is flawless and moral and just and righteous, that God is certain and truthful and faithful and good, that God is separate and distinct and other and in a class all to himself, that God is completely, entirely, and absolutely righteous in his being and nature and essence. Therefore, it is impossible, as verse 6 puts it, to say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness. Because only those who walk in the light have true fellowship with God. Or as verse 29 states, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. Now, for clarity's sake, John is not promoting here some form of behavioral modification as the means of becoming a child of God. John is not promoting here that everyone who tries to be nicer to their neighbors or who gives a compliment to a co-worker or who sends a present to a family member automatically becomes a child of the Most High God. John is not promoting here that everyone who buys food for the homeless, visits the sick, and cares for the least of these automatically becomes a child of the Most High God. Still more, John is even not promoting here that everyone who reads their Bible daily, travels to Jerusalem, walks the steps that Jesus walks, gets baptized in the Jordan, buys a suit, joins a church, and even attends small group, automatically becomes a child of the Most High God. 
because, and listen carefully, church, simply making a behavioral change in your life, a behavioral change that is rooted in your own merit, your own strength, your own zeal, and your own white-knuckle approach, that is not enough to make you a child of the Most High God. Because as John writes in verse 29, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him meaning everyone who lives in a way where they practice right living or where they practice God-pleasing behavior, all of those people, they have been born of God first. And brother Christian, sister Christian, that is God's work in you. As J.I. Packer put it, just as infants do not induce or cooperate in their own procreations and birth, no more can those who are dead in their trespasses and sins prompt the quickening operation of God's spirit within them. You see, Christian, when you were born again, when you were born of God and received the anointing of the Holy Spirit and came to saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, instantly God changed you. He changed your heart from a heart of stone, a heart that was hard and dead and hostile to his will, to a heart of flesh, to a heart that is now beating and alive and receptive to his very will. And it's only through this rebirth, it is only through this regeneration that one can truly be Become a child of the Most High God. And church, when one becomes a child of the Most High God, oh, they want to look just like their Father who is in heaven. Tony Evans shared this story about how when people visit his house, many of them marvel at a picture that he has framed. On one side of the frame is a picture of Tony when he was 18 years old. On the other side of the frame is a picture of his son when he was 18 years old. And what is amazing about these pictures is that the two of them look like twins. Thus, even though Tony is many years older, and even though they are father and son in these photos, they look nearly identical. Why? Because of a DNA connection. Tony's DNA was transferred to his son. And in the process of his development, he wound up looking just like his father. Church, if we really have been born of God, then we must resemble our heavenly father because through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his essence has been transferred to us. And since we are the children of God now, people should marvel at how we resemble the righteousness of our father. As John Stott put it, a child exhibits the parent's character because he shares the parent's nature. Thus, a person's righteousness is the evidence of his new birth and not the cause of it. Therefore, John notes that righteousness and not knowledge is the principal mark of being born of God. And this is noteworthy, church, because John's opponents claimed that it was their knowledge that it was their intelligence, that it was their special enlightenment that displayed that they were truly of God. Whereas John says, no, it's not one's superior knowledge or their theological depth or how many arguments they can win that proves that you're a child of God. It's your righteousness. It's your godly living. It's keeping the commandments of God. That is the evidence that one has been born again. Thus, church, is it obvious that you have been born of God? Is it obvious who your father is? Or to put it another way, who do you look like? When people look at you and evaluate your way of life, does it reflect the image of your heavenly father? Or does it reflect the image of the Antichrist? 
For when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Church, Jesus Christ is coming again, and he will certainly know his sheep from the goats. And whoever acknowledges Christ before men, Christ will acknowledge before his Father who is in heaven. Thus, Christian, are you preparing for the future return of Christ by abiding in him faithfully today? As we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here first. And non-Christian, the closing message to you this morning is really, really simple. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? And how do you know the answer to that question? Well, the goats, they reject the teachings of Christ. They stand in opposition to the ways of Christ. They believe lies about Jesus Christ. They remain unrepentant of their sin and outside of the saving grace of Christ. And thus they will shrink from him in shame at the return of Jesus Christ. However, unlike the goats, the sheep, they will remain confident at the return of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they have placed their faith in the message of Jesus Christ. Non-Christian, if you hear anything I have to say this morning, please, please, please let it be this. That only those who place their faith in the gospel message of Jesus Christ are truly born of God as it is only the children of God who believe that God himself came into the world to seek and to save the lost. That God, the God of the universe, humbled himself to the point of breaking into the world and being born in the likeness of man. For that is who Jesus Christ is, truly God and truly man. And how did Jesus Christ save the lost? By living the life that we could never live. A life that was without sin and wrongdoing. A life that was holy and righteous. A life in which he kept the law perfectly for us. However, Jesus Christ, he not only kept the law for us, he also paid the price for our breaking of the law by bearing the punishment and the chastisement and the wrath that we as sinners deserve for our sin by dying in our place on a cross. Non-Christian Jesus Christ, he died on a cross as our substitute, as the propitiation, as the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sins. And because he appeased the wrath of God the Father, and because he is sinless and is God, three days later, Jesus Christ, he rose from the grave. He rose for our justification and defeated sin and defeated death through eternity. And he now offers eternal life for all who place their trust in him. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, the only one who died for your sin, the only one who can clothe you in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. And you can leave here today 
with confidence. You can walk out of here this morning with assurance and courage and with a morale that will be lifted through eternity because you are no longer who you once were, but through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are now a child of the Most High God, ready and excited and longing for the return of Jesus Christ, your Savior, the one who made it possible for you to now walk in newness of life. And to the Christian who is here this morning, to those who have been born of God, verse 28 reads, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now in context, church, this passage is speaking directly of a Christian's confidence, a Christian's boldness, a Christian's cheerful courage that they will have when Jesus Christ returns. However, I'd also like to remind you this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, that because we have already been born of God, and because we know that Jesus Christ will return again, those two facts in and of themselves should give us a confidence, a boldness, and a cheerful courage to stand for Christ in the here and now. And yes, I know this world, they are running their hell-bound race, and we are seeing it all around us. Abortion clinics are still killing babies. The media is still promoting all types of sexual immorality. The transgender movement is now even targeting our children. So yes, the world around us, it looks dark, Christian. But, and never forget this, Christian, you are a child of the Most High God, and Jesus Christ will come again for his church. Because that in and of itself should give you a boldness, Christian, to lead your family away from the ways of the world and in the commandments of God. It should give you a freedom, Christian, to speak the truth to those who are caught up in the lies of the Antichrist. And it should give you a supernatural courage, Christian, to stand up and proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified, even when the world is telling us to recant because our message is too offensive. Oh, Christian, I do not see this season of life as a season we need to fear. Christian, I see this season as a wonderful opportunity to confidently let our gospel light shine for all in the darkness to see. Michael Corcoran shared this story about Hugh Latimer, a 15th century English Protestant preacher who once preached before King Henry VIII. However, Henry was, Henry was greatly displeased by his boldness in the sermon and ordered Latimer to preach again the following Sunday and to apologize for the offense that he had given. So the next Sunday, after reading his text, Latimer began his sermon this way. Hugh Latimer, do you know before who you speak this day? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if you offend. Therefore take heed that you speak not a word that may displease him. But consider well, Hugh, do you not know from where you came, upon whose message you were sent? For it is the great and mighty God who is all present and who beholds all things and who is able to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore take care that you deliver God's message faithfully. So Latimer preached the same sermon he preached the Sunday before with considerably even more energy before King Henry VIII. Why? 
because he had a confidence in his God, a confidence in his status as a child of the Most High God, and a confidence that Jesus Christ would come again. Oh, that we have that same confidence today, church, because today we have a great opportunity to stand up boldly for Christ. And yes, we might get picked on, and yes, we might lose business opportunities, and yes, the media even might drag our names through the mud and call us bigots and racist and sexist and hate-filled hypocrites, but church, if you look at church history, the church has always been at its best when its back is against the wall and when the world is darkest around them. Why? Because it forces the church to cry out, just as it did in Acts, for God to look upon our threats and grant his servants to continue to speak his word with all boldness. Thus, church, we can live boldly, we can proclaim courageously, and we can abide confidently in Jesus Christ in the here and now, because we are God's children and Christ will come again for his church. Thus, it is my prayer that we as a church body, that we be confident in the Lord. Father, we see the rapidly changing culture. We see growing hostility toward you and toward your children. And Lord, I pray that you help us stand up. Help us to not see this time as one we need to fear, but instead help us to see this season as one of great opportunity, an opportunity to share the true light of Jesus Christ, the true light of men. Lord, we know that we are your children, and you will care for us, you will protect us, and you have even prepared a room for us. Thus, we can be sure that you will come again. Therefore, let these truths inspire us, drive us, and motivate us to confidently abide in you no matter what we may face. Because if we acknowledge Christ before men, then Christ will acknowledge, uh, acknowledge us before his heavenly Father, our heavenly Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good, and yet our confidence in you is so low. Father, we see these little things taking place in the world, and we think that you are not sovereignly in control of everything. Forgive us, Lord, for not having the utmost confidence in you. Father, I repent that at times I don't think that you will show up as boldly and as brilliantly as you do. You are good and you are God. Father, help us as a church body to have our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ grow. To have our confidence and our status as a child of the Most High God grow, to have a confidence in the fact that Jesus Christ will return again for the church, the church that he purchased with his own blood. Grow our confidence in you, Father, I pray, and let it affect and impact everything we do from now until you appear again.